Um, there's an old adage in carpentry, measure twice, cut once, and it's the proverb to the man who's quick to the draw on the saw, but then finds himself having to recut it. And I am no carpenter, nor the son of a carpenter, and you have heard me make mention that most projects in my house, um, I might start them, but my wonderful wife Shannon finishes them, because she's awesome at it, and I'm just good at looking at the stuff and saying, hmm, let's do that. And then I measure it for an hour and I'm afraid to make the cut. Why I thought about that this week is because in going back to Daniel 9, 25 to 27, it's one thing to measure it out in the study. It's another thing to make the cut in the preaching. And that's really what it is. The measurement for me is the time I spend preparing. The cut is when I get up to here and do it. And sometimes I look at the cut and, you know, Sunday or Monday and I go, ah, it could have been more precise. And so I want to I want to go back and be more precise today because, as we just sang, he is worthy. And I want us to see more of our Messiah and what we have to look forward to in Daniel 9. And then we'll jump into 10 next week, Lord willing. So follow with me as I read Daniel 9, 25 to 27. So, and this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel God's answer to Daniel's prayer request in Daniel 9, 4 to 19. Gabriel comes and visits Daniel, and now here is his answer from heaven. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, speaking of Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, the prince that is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So reads God's very word to us. May he bless the hearing and heeding of it today. I, I say may he bless the hearing and heeding of it because that's what John wrote when he was given a prophecy in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Revelation 1-3. Asking God to bless the hearing and the heeding of it comes right out of the words of John in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed to know more about the end times rather than having less in your mind about it. And that can seem counter to the way sometimes churches talk about the end as seeming, you know, it's, it's in the by and by and it's, it's as good as debating how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. What, what's in it for us to know about the end? When I just read Daniel 9, 25 to 27, some of you are like, what in the world is that? But if we take the word at its word, that you will be blessed to hear and to heed what we're about to study in Daniel 9, 25 to 27 today. A few reasons why. 
The most obvious is this when it comes to studying the end times. It's as inspired as the rest of the Bible. I know that seems a foregone conclusion. We were in 2 Timothy 3, 16 that said all scripture is God breathed and useful and truthful for edification, building up correction. But we have to remember that it's equal inspiration from cover to cover in the Bible. And as it was said by some brother, I quoted it without giving you know, to who it was due, A.W. Tozer, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. That why we want to look at everything in the word of God is because we need it all. Now, there are parts initially that even Paul would commend, uh, like parts of the gospel and learning about Jesus that he would say you know, is, is the pure spiritual milk of the gospel of the word. And yeah, you move on and you grow on just like you know, an appetite grows as a Blaine Duncan grows from a little baby Blaine to now his appetite's grown. It's evident. But you got to feed where you're at at the time. And so we start small. We start in the gospel. As new believers, we want to know who Jesus is. That's everything to us. But to, to grow in maturity, into completion, we need the whole Bible. So the first thing we think about when we think about studying the end is we need all of it because all of it's inspired. But it's just not an inspired word. It's an inspiring word. It, so it's just not to say, oh, you know, we need to study the end because it's God's word and, and that's good and well enough as is. When you read what other writers of the Bible wrote about the end... They see it as inspiring or motivating or moving for us to be more godly people today. Not just to know the stuff about the future. 1 John 3, the Apostle John near the end of his life writes this in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There's still more for us to grow into. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will finally see him just as he is. And that's cool and exciting, right? We'll finally see Christ and we'll be glorified and perfect. But here's what it does for us today. John writes right after that. Everyone who has this hope, if you're pumped to see Jesus and be perfect like him one day, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's the inspiration. As in when we think upon being with Christ one day and, and glorified with him, there's some motivation to be holy today. Paul says a similar thing, just in a, in a different way, in uh, Colossians 3, when talking about the return of Christ. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Amen. Second coming, return of Jesus. Either you go to meet him or he comes and gets you. Either way, that's what's going to happen. So he's going to be revealed in glory. Isn't that just a nice pie-in-the-sky piece of theology? Look how Paul pivots from that glorious thought about you meeting Jesus to this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. How about that? It's, it's inspiring to think about being with Jesus one day so much so that Paul says, hey, when you just think about being with them in glory, that's who you belong to. Your mind, your body, your soul, all of it belongs to him. He's our life. Therefore, live like it right now. It's all his then. Treat it as you should right now. Don't trash it. I mean, that's my modern adaptation of that verse. In light of the treasure you are, Christian, 
And you are. Every single part of you is a treasure that God has redeemed in Christ. Treat it as such. Don't treat it like trash. Now, part of this is floating around in the time of the New Testament writers because there was leftover philosophy from Plato and Greek thinkers onward that the body is bad and spirit is good. And so you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't make a difference on your soul. And that's a lie. We're linked. What I use my mind and tongue and hands for is who I am on the inside can't separate it out. There's no dualism in Christianity like there is in Greek thought. So it's inspiring. It's inspired. And I'll, I'll throw one more in there today just to kind of unsettle the settled. It's unsettling. When we think about the end, it's, it's unsettling for us as believers. What do I mean by that? When Jesus talks about his second coming, he, he fires a shot over the bow to disciples a warning shot. Mark 8:38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. That's our generation. It's been since the time of Christ. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words now, the son of man, which is right from Daniel 7. The son of man, Jesus, will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Is that unsettling? Does that make you watch your words? I'm not just talking about living a holy life at this point. That, that was in Colossians. This is about, man, do I love him enough to live for him so much that I would never deny him? I would never be ashamed of the name of Christ, no matter what it would cost me. Because I start going too far down that path of compromise with the world and accommodating with the world, the world that in 1 John 2, he says, beloved, this is the last hour and the world is passing away. Why would you live for something and be so bound up in people's opinions of you in the world when it's passing away and the only word that will remain forever is the enduring word of God, Isaiah 48. Everything else is grass, right? It's flowers, it's passing. So if we live with this idea of, oh man, I don't know if, if that's gonna cost me something, he's saying, beware, that's why I say it's the, studying the end in the words of Jesus himself is unsettling to me. I mean, do I know my salvation is secure? I do. But I should feel a prick of something when I don't speak up. Because that's me being ashamed. When the opportunity's there, and I'm just like, ah, it might ruin, you know, this thing you're, you're doing, Adam, if you share the gospel right now. Is it because I'm ashamed? And there's a fine line between being ashamed and uh, tact. Uh, timing. You know, I used to be a waiter, hustling tables to pay for seminary, one meatball at a time. And, you know, I would want to share the gospel with my unbelieving coworkers. But right in the middle of a busy Friday night when we all are in the weeds, six tables each, and I'm walking back to the Pepsi thing, like, hey man, have you ever committed a sin? Have you ever lied? Have you ever, and it's like, I'm making that suicide drink while I'm doing it too, because with every sin, I'm doing another one. Like, that wasn't the best timing intact to talk about the guy's eternity, but I knew me and that guy are gonna be rolling silverware at closing time, and I'm gonna have about 25 minutes with him. Am I ashamed? 
So I'm praying the whole time, Lord, that's my opportunity. So that's a little side, but I just, it's inspired, it's inspiring, it's unsettling, or a few motivations. But man, if we're not motivated by that last song we sang, <laughs> he's worthy. And, and blessed are you, Christian, according to Revelation 1.3, to hear these words today of Daniel's prophecy and to heed them. So that's point one, the end matters. That was actual a point. You might have thought it was an introduction. Now we're going to get to the point, which is the matters of the end. So let's talk about the matters of the end. Let's go to Daniel 9 and let's do a, a revisit of 25 to 27. And let me just give you um, a big picture framework. 25 and 26 are what is already. Verse 25 and 26, whatever you just heard me read about Jerusalem being rebuilt and Messiah the Prince being cut off and devastation to Jerusalem is the already. Verse 27 is the not yet. So as we approach this, just have that in your mind because we're going to talk about matters of the end. Now, when Daniel got this prophecy around 538 BC, they were all matters of the end to him. They were all going to come. Here we are in 2023, living in the white space between 26 and 27. Maybe that'll clarify it. You know, those maps, you are here. So if you want to write in the white space between the end of verse 26 and between 27, Christian, you are here. This is where we live in the in-between of the already and the not yet. So let me give you a quick flashback to the already. 70 weeks in verse 24 was language that was 70 weeks of seven. That was symbolic language, even borrowed from Levitical law, Leviticus 25, uh, 1 to 7, that in the Hebrew language, it wasn't out of place for there to be uh, the idea of a week being in, in the mind of the reader seven years. And we get that from Leviticus 25 in verse Three, six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, and we know in the Bible, the year seven has a sense of completion going back to Genesis 1. God rests on the seventh day. So we can admit, when we're coming into prophecy, we do have to look hard at this thing between what's the symbolic seven and then what's the literal seven. And it can seem like it's doing that. One of the things sometimes you just have to do is, like we're doing this week, is step back and connect some scriptures to try to get your arms around it to understand it. So back in Leviticus 25, one of the laws that God had for honoring the Sabbath wasn't just the seventh day of the week. He's talking about the seventh year for the land. Don't abuse the land. Take care of the land. Give it a year to rest. Verse 4 of Leviticus 25, a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Don't sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Give it a rest and give the people around you some rest too. You can live off of what I blessed you with beforehand. What God is teaching his people from the beginning is y'all can chill on the rest day. Like I'm a God who is gracious to my children. If I tell you to take a break, take a break. I'll provide. That's back in here in Leviticus. And, and if you don't do it, there will be consequences. Second Chronicles 36 develops the idea that one of the reasons that Israel was in exile for 70 years, it says in Second Chronicles 36, is because they disobeyed this command in Leviticus 25. 
And so I'm going to, I'm going to take you 70 years out. Potentially, and, and this is where, you know, if you really wanted to track the amount of time between the giving of the law and, you know, when this would have taken place in Israel when Jeremiah would have made that prophecy, if, could, could that be 70 times 7? As in for every time they disobeyed, Israel did from Leviticus to the time they went to exile. Could you total that up? Would that be 490 years? Some would make the case it could. I'm not going to make that case. As in the God was saying, every year that you're going to be in exile is a reminder for the every seventh year you didn't give the land rest. And you didn't trust me. Trust you for what? That you'll have enough to eat. Verse 7. Even your cattle and the animals will have enough to eat. Like he's going to take care. What does Jesus say? The birds. The birds are going to be taken care of. So you can be sufficient with the problems of your own today and not worry about tomorrow. This is all in Leviticus. I know you didn't show up thinking we'd be in Leviticus. We never do. It always sneaks up on us. Verse 8, you're to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. So now we got the seven times seven, 49 years. And then here's the fun part. Verse 9, in that 49th year, so you've been taking a break every seven years, but we're going to have a special party in the 50th year. And you shall sound a ram's horn. Isn't that an awesome party? I mean, college dudes, what if you showed up at somebody's house and like, bro, I, I brought the shafar, man. Let's bust it out. <laughs> oh. That's what I'm saying. Like, maybe it was cool back then. I don't know if it is today. But you'll sound a ram's horn on the 10th day of the seventh month, and this is on the day of atonement to remind us that God has paid for our sins. You'll sound a horn through the whole land. You'll consecrate a 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. And here's where we get the year of Jubilee, because the year of the ram's horn just wouldn't have a ring to it. The, it shall be Jubilee to you. And each of you return to his own property and return to his family. And you'll have the 50th year as a Jubilee. You'll not sow nor reap nor gather. It's Jubilee. It's celebration. It's joy. And it should be holy to you. Why did I want to take you back to there? Because that's where we see that None of this language here about 70 weeks and seven weeks of seven and 49 years is accidental. It's a lesson. Just like we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that there's lessons in the Old Testament for the church to learn from. So God is revisiting this language and he's saying there will be a period of 70 weeks, 490 years, verse 24, where sin will be atoned for and righteousness will be brought in. That was the day of atonement. That was the year of Jubilee. That was the 50th year. Sins atoned for, let's party. This is where verse 24 is pointing. That in the bigger scheme of God's plan, when this 40, 490 years in total is complete, doesn't mean consecutive, but when it's complete, when all the truths of verse 24 finally come together, there will be no more sin left to be atoned for. When it's all said and done and we're in the eternal state with Christ, is who's king over the new heavens and new earth forever, Revelation 21, 22. It's the eternal year of Jubilee. There, ne there's never anything to do after that in the sense of sin being atoned for. It's done. So all oh, that's tucked away right there in verse 24, but we're here to talk about 25, 26, the already. So let's first see, you're to know and discern, that's why we're taking another glance at this, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now that was Daniel's request back in Verses 4 to 19. God, are you going to bring us back to your holy mountain? Verse 16. Are you going to bring us back to your city? Or are we going to be a reproach? So Daniel's praying for something in part. 
But he does realize something in full, and he may not have been fully aware of it in verse 18 of Daniel 9. He says, when I'm asking for you to bring us back to our city, the place that's been made desolate, I'm not asking on behalf of my merit, but on your great compassion. Now jump back to verse 25. There is going to be a decree for the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Yes, you'll return, but what good is returning to God's holy place without God's holy person, without God's perfect prophet, without God's perfect priest, without God's eternal king? Who might that be? Staring you in the face in verse 25, Messiah the Prince. The ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Because what good is it to be back in your place without your presence? It's not. Brother and sister, I mean, we can get caught up in the same thing in our, Christian, in our Christianity, in our Christian lives. There could be, we can be waiting for something to change externally, like some of the exiles were, like Daniel. We just need to be back in Jerusalem. We need to rebuild the temple. We need to fire up the ram's horn and everything will be right again. And sometimes we play that way, don't we? I just need to get myself back in church. I need to get myself back in the word. I need to get my life back in order, my house back in order, my fam back in order. What haven't you put back in order? Your relationship with the Lord. I mean, we have people coming in for help, counseling, why we're trying to get a counseling ministry going, marriages that need help. Sometimes even where a couple's not even together at the point, living separate. How short-sighted would it be to just say, let's just try to get you back in the home together again and not say, let's get you back in Christ together again. You need the gospel. You need to understand about sin because when you get the gospel, you understand forgiveness, don't you? And that's how that relationship's gonna survive. Otherwise, you could be two people living in the same house with two different agendas and neither person forgiving the other. This, this is what Jesus is going to be as the Messiah Prince to his people. It's not just that they're going to be back in their holy place. They need their prince there. But here's the problem. The people that needed the prince did what to him? They cut him off, verse 26. So you have Daniel describing this time of going back to Jerusalem. Seven weeks, 49 years, it's going to be rebuilt. And whether that decree was from Cyrus or Artaxerxes, that the temple got rebuilt, the city got restored. Now look at the end of verse 25, even in times of distress. If there's ever been a people who have always lived in their land and under distress, it's Israel, even till today. They're not out of that cycle. Pull up the news on them today. There's a guarantee something last week. There was some bombing. There was some fight. And, it, and even when 1948, they finally got restored or recognized as a nation, it didn't change anything. <laughs> Do they have the temple area? So they're still under distress. They may have rebuilt things that they didn't solve the problem. Why? Because they didn't get the problem solver, Messiah the Prince. In the 62 weeks leading up to Jesus' entry into the city, 30 AD, or I should say, well, if you, it's 27, his ministry starts, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, but being recognized as a Messiah character, as one who is a prophet, priest, king, kind of happened when he came into the city on... Palm Sunday, there was some hallelujah, some honor and glory and praise, but what did they do a few days later? They cut them off. Look at verse 26. At the end of that 62-week period, that time of restoration, when the king, the prophet, the priest, the, the, the prince is back, he gets cut off. And so their problems aren't solved, are they? They rejected him. 
Isaiah 53 makes that clear. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. This is, this is Isaiah the prophet talking about his people, the Jews. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living... Direct fulfillment from Isaiah 53, 8 to Daniel 9, 26. He's cut off. He's done. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with the rich man in his death. That's alluding to Matthew 26, or 27, 60, that he was buried in Joseph's tomb. Buried with the rich man, though with the, the wicked men in his death on the cross. He was so cut off, and as Daniel 9, 26 says, Having nothing, he, didn't, he had nothing. Daniel had to provide the linens for Jesus' dead body. He had to put him in the tomb that he purchased. Jesus had nothing at the end. That's why you can't apply this Messiah reference to anyone else but Christ. Right there in verse 26. It's already happened. Now here's the tricky part, and we'll finish 26 and then move on to what's still to come. After he's cut off and he, he has had nothing, and this is the end of the 62 weeks, so we know that happens if 30 A.D., the crucifixion. Now, so here's where we do. Does this happen right away? Because it doesn't seem like in the count of Acts that this happens right away. The people of the prince who is to come. Now, the prince who is to come isn't the prince that just got cut off. Anybody can read that and at face value understand that. The people of the prince who is to come will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, what prince or imposter of the real Messiah prince could still be to come? Well, there's some different viewpoints on that out there. But whoever the people of the prince are, they're going to be the ones that destroy the city and the sanctuary. And in such a way, it's like a flood. It's not saying a flood does it. It's, it's with the veracity, the, just the, the, the ferocity of a flood. It's just going to wipe out Jerusalem. To the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. And almost every interpreter of this says, this was the four-year war from 66 to 70 between the Jews and Rome. And 70, verse 26 ends there where Vespasian comes in and he raises the city. I mean, just annihilates it. I mean, people put on crosses outside the city. People being bodies thrown over the wall. It was horrific. But when we are going to turn to Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21, does it match word for word with the desolations that are promised then by Jesus? Is all of it fulfilled by 70 AD? It's hard to make that case. Now, all this I wanted to wrap up and, and tie off with a little bit. I, I not only came back to the text to study it, but I went back to my um, 11th grade drawing abilities. And I know I put a picture up last week for y'all, but then I thought, you know, to try to show where the church fits into this, where Daniel sees 25, 26, and 27 as consecutive. So it's like one of these little drawings. My wonderful assistant Amos is holding it up, where he's looking at it, and he's seeing, you know, Cyrus or Artaxerxes in 445. He's seeing the rebuilding of Jerusalem, you know, 396. Then he's seeing the 69 weeks. And he's seeing this Messiah prince and being cut off. And even verse 27 all happening in sequence. But remember these fun books we had? You pull them apart and then what do you see? There was something in between. And that 
One-time prince he saw in verse 25, 26 that he might have thought is the same guy in 27, we now see as Antichrist, a false Christ. And what do we see? The important thing for us to see today is the time in between. Where do we live at? In that part that what Daniel couldn't see in 1 Peter 1 says, prophets long to look into. They could only see the future through this perspective. Big peak after big peak. But then what do we get from the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3? The mystery that's going to be made known through the church. He writes that. Turn to Ephesians 3 and you'll see what I'm saying. Ephesians chapter 3, this mystery period, this period, the mystery of the age called the church. Paul, now an apostle to the Gentiles, because according to Jesus in Luke 21, 24, we are living in the times of the Gentiles. As in the time where God is bringing in those who weren't initially brought in. It was, you know, the Jews were God's chosen people. How did the Gentiles get in? Sorry, out of luck. But in the rejection, Romans 11 talks about, of the one, the others are grafted in. And now Paul, this missionary, this preacher to the Gentiles, he says in Ephesians 3.1, a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. If you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you by revelation, as in God revealed this, to make known a mystery. And now the church is written about as a mystery in the New Testament. Now who's it a mystery to? Not to us, the church. It's to the prophets. It's to those who long to look into it and say, who, what? What is God doing right now? Wasn't he just supposed to do it all at once? Why would the Messiah have to go? And when's he coming back? And who are these Gentiles going around telling everybody about the Messiah? Well, read on. Paul says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, like Daniel's, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So now there is that greater revelation that we know where the church age does fit in. This is you and I in the white space between verse 26 and 27. Pretty amazing. To be specific, the Gentiles, and here's the church age, they're fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promised in Christ through the gospel. That's it, right there. That's where we fit into God's plan of redemption. We're, we're part of the promises of Christ through the gospel. Verse seven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister to the gift of God's grace, given to me according to the working of his power. And here's the crux of this. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light the administration of the mystery that was hidden for ages so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So the church is the one that heavenly authorities and rulers are looking at going, oh, that's the plan of God. It was in the plan all along. But the prophets couldn't have seen that from their vantage point looking forward. But now we can with the fuller revelation of God looking back. And, and so that's where we can go back to Daniel 7 or Daniel 9 now. And where we can come up with the view that in putting it all together from the width and breadth of our Bible say, I could see where the church could be this white space between 926 and 27. There are plenty of guys smarter than me, good and godly men who would disagree. I'm okay with that. I mean, we all have to come to the text humbly and, and, and study it and, and put all the pieces together and then present it and, and take a position. Now, either position for anyone worth their preaching is going to still point to one main character, and that's that Jesus Christ is going to return. And that's what we really get excited for.
What we want to see in verse 27 as we talk about the not yet is just how much tribulation should we be prepared for as the church, right? John 16, 33. Jesus tells us these things I've spoken to you. Tell them the disciples, night of his betrayal, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. So from the time of Christ's crucifixion, disciples of Jesus have been what? Marked out. They rejected me, they'll reject you. The question we always have in the church age is just how much tribulation are we going to have to go through? Just how much are we going to have to suffer? And there is differing viewpoints on that. We would teach from this position here that rather than the church suffer, when they already have trusted in the one who would suffer on their behalf, that the Lord comes and takes them out. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, the rapture. So before, if you want to say, hey, what else is stuffed? How much are you stuffing in there, Adam? Like a Thanksgiving turkey, pushing more of it in that white space you speak of. I'm pushing the rapture in there too. Because look at verse 27. Now we'll talk about the not yet. Speaking of Antichrist, this prince who is to come, he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the last week. That's the, out of the 490 years, this is the last seven years. This is the missing week. Because back in 25 and 26, there's 69 weeks, 62, seven weeks at the beginning for the rebuilding, 62 weeks to lead up to Messiah coming and being cut off. Where's that last week? Those seven years. Well, here they are. We're, we've, we've fast forwarded in time. Daniel is seeing it all in real time. Now we're going to jump around to some texts that relate to the Antichrist. And, you know, you could even see in my Bible how many tabs I had to add this week. I was putting together some Ikea furniture yesterday, um, which my thought in putting Ikea furniture together was there's no greater sense of false accomplishment than building a chair from Ikea. <laughs> that you really think you're accomplishing something and all you're doing is following like the most basic Lego instructions written. I think Ikea reached out the Lego at some point and built their, you know, instructions out of how do you help three-year-olds build stuff? Let's help 42-year-olds. And I had 18 screws and a bunch of pieces of wood. And the one thing I was noticing in building this, and this is what connects here, is they didn't want me to screw the screws all the way in all at once. Like just pick one and put it in because then when you start putting them all that way, they're not going to fit and you're going to be hammering it and then you're going to be taking it apart, putting it in the box, going back to Ikea saying, I don't know what happened to this thing. It was like broken when I got it. <laughs> but I think what, what made me think about how we want to do our end times theology is kind of like the way they caution you to build Ikea furniture. You have a ton of verses that you got to be kind of putting together a little bit over here and then a little bit here. Don't tighten it all the way in. Because if you tighten that one verse that you build your whole end time system out of, later on you'll regret it because you go, well, that doesn't match up with this piece over here. So when you put together an end times view, why you have to use all the Bible? Because it needs to be carefully constructed. And you're just ratcheting here and ratcheting there and ratcheting there. And then before I knew it, I had the Agam, not the Adam, the Agam chair for my three-year-old to sit in. And I felt accomplished over something that is worth zero sense of accomplishment. You may not believe me, I even Googled it. It's called the Ikea effect. And this can apply to some guys who are too wacky in their theology. They have the same thing. It's when you have a cognitive bias in which consumers place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created. And then in parentheses it says, often poorly constructed. 
And that's kind of how we have to be with end time stuff, to a degree. That just because you may construct this view of the end, and then you had a part in putting those verses together, you like it so much, then you're convinced it's what? It's the only way. Now, I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of other theologians presenting you our view at this church. Because we do pick a view. We're not golden corral here. Like, here's our meal. We're not saying you can't disagree with that meal. Because we're talking about the most important thing, the return of Jesus. All the dates and facts and figures. We're just trying to help you look at your Bible and say, well, I want to know what verse 27 means. So let's get on with it. This Antichrist, he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, where does that fit into the New Testament idea of an Antichrist? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because, you know, Paul writes that 2 Thessalonians only about 25 years after Christ has gone back. And there's false teaching going around the churches 25 years later that Jesus already returned. Just like the idea that some have that Jesus returned in 70 AD with the desolation of Jerusalem. The problem you have to deal with is all the language about you'll see the Son of Man coming when the clouds of heaven and like lightning from one end of the sky to the other. And you go, man, I I get that Josephus recorded how bad the desolation was in 70 AD. You think somebody would have seen Jesus if it was all complete by 70 AD? You think somebody, just one person would have been like, yo, All y'all were looking at the destruction. I looked up and there he was coming on the clouds just like lightning. Do you miss lightning when you see it? You don't miss lightning when you see it. It's right there. You can't miss it. So that's one of the big, you know, fatal flaws of that view. Is Jesus is telling you, you're going to know when I'm coming back. So if it happened all by the time of 70 AD, where was Christ? The destruction's there but not the one who is sovereign over all. So 2 Thessalonians, there's lies and false teaching going around the early church. That's why you read Paul say here, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. As in he already came, you missed it, you got left behind. Let no one in any way deceive you because that day of the Lord will not come unless the great apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Starts to sound like the language here in Daniel 9, 27. The one who makes desolate even a complete destruction. Furthermore, verse 4, this man of lawlessness, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, in his vision of the future, sounds a lot like that last little horn from the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not saying Rome's going to rise again, but maybe when we think about Roman civilization, and here we are hundreds of years later in the aftermath of that Western civilization, again, you start to get into the dangerous waters when you're like, okay, guys, be on the watch out. Italy will rise, and there will be a re-rise of the Roman Empire. You know, like, be careful with that. But just know that, hey, it could be that that last fourth kingdom in Daniel 7 that has been revealed in Daniel 2 as the rise of Rome, this little horn is a boaster, if he's anything else. Uh, Chapter 8, it says he has a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel 7, 20 and 21, he is waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days comes and wipes them out. 
Now, he's, he's this lawless one that will be revealed when the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. One that is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. Now jump ahead with me to Revelation chapter 13. Because we're, we're, we're doing the Ikea thing, right? I'm just putting a few screws in and I'm not saying, there it is, that's the verse that seals the deal. I'm tightening a little bit here in 2 Thess. I'm tightening a bit here in Daniel 7. I'm tightening a bit here in Revelation 13. Now, big picture of Revelation, in case you don't know it. We started in chapter 1. We should heed and hear it. Christ gives warnings to the church, seven of them, in chapters 2 and 3. And they were real churches existing in the time that John wrote that, around 90 to 95 A.D. But when you read about the problems of those churches, you could say, well, those exist until today to do as well. So the same things we have had to be watched out for and repented of then when John wrote it, we have to watch out for the church for today. And then you get the Revelation 4 and 5, and the scene is heaven, and there's what we would expect, the song we sang already, all blessing and honor and glory to him. All the redeemed, they're singing, they're praising him. But those that are up there are asking that same question, who is worthy to open the scroll? The scroll for what? The tribulation to begin, God's judgment on earth. And that starts in chapter 6. And what you never hear in chapters 6 through 19 is anything about the church on earth anymore. Where'd it go? If this is a picture of the end that John has, and John loves the church, he's writing to the churches. Where's the church in Revelation 6 to 19? Again, tighten in the little screw. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. It's been raptured up. God took it out. Christ came and redeemed his bride because we're not destined, as 1 Thessalonians tells us, for wrath, are we? We're not that destined for wrath as the church. The wrath has been removed. So why would we go through the tribulation? Now, I want to just connect the idea of who this lawless one is to Revelation chapter 13. So again, we have this imagery that we've seen back in Daniel of, of beasts and, you know, some of them are leopard-like, bear-like. I'm not trying to make any kind of parallels there. I would just say that when we're talking about this person that through his boasting and arrogance, now verse 5, this beast comes out and who's able to wage war with him? And there is given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. Sounds like Daniel 7. Sounds like Daniel 9. Sounds like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is boasting in arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. How many years is 42 months? Three and a half years. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. The middle of the week would be seven years, halfway through, three and a half years. You with me, Ikea furniture? Good. So again, the case we're trying to put together is saying a little bit here, a little bit there. You put it together, Daniel 13, or Revelation 13. He opens his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That sounds like Daniel chapter 7, verses 20 and 21 again, doesn't it? But all this is authority. God is allowing his wrath to be poured out on the world during the seven years of tribulation. And to overcome and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So let's finish up back here in Daniel 
So there is the time period, the seven years of tribulation, the lawless one, Second Thessalonians, the boaster, Daniel 7. He puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations. Now, it's not to say guys like Pompey and Antiochus Epiphanes and in the history haven't done something um, abominable inside God's temple. They have. It's just saying this guy's going to do something as well. One so bad that it's going to make desolate even a complete destruction, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's going to be something he does that finally, and we can go to Matthew 24 to land the plane on this, when Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation. There's something this one is going to do, this antichrist character, that at that point, the return of Christ is here. At that point, it's gone too far. At that point, there's, there's no turning back. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking about the end. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, so he's referencing where we were just at. Let the reader understand, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and then read it, read on, read on. False Christs and false prophets will arise to deceive, but I've told you in advance, here's how you're going to know we are in the end. As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And immediately after the tribulation, the sun is darkened, the moon won't give its light, stars will fall from the sky, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I'll stop there. Read on from Revelation 6 to 19 and you'll read about all that Jesus is talking about there. And, and why we care about this as the church is because it brings a word of comfort to us that we don't have to go through that. Doesn't mean, as Jesus said in John 16, 33, you won't have tribulation. You're going through tribulation right now. Some of you, it's, it's personal. Some of you, it's in your own life. It's in your family's life. Some of you, it could be you're being persecuted for your faith. Some of you look around to the state of our country right now, and you would feel a certain amount of tribulation already, maybe loss of some freedoms that you thought you would always have, and it starts to make you worried. But what does Jesus say? You, you can take peace in me. I've secured the most important thing. Back to Daniel 9.24. I've taken away your sin. I've atoned for it. Your transgression is removed. And however and whenever it is your time to go, your eternal righteousness is secure. So for the believer, we have great hope. We don't fear. I mean, sure, I'm not saying we'll all be, have the same amount of fearlessness, but deep down in our hearts, if we understand where all of history is headed and what we're to do while we're here on this earth, be his witnesses, then it changes the way we walk out of this room today, doesn't it? That we're not just being so self-protected and looking out for number one and saying, man, I'm just worried about what's happening in our country and they're going to come for me. Well, sure, that should cause you some amount of care, especially when you think if you have kids or grandkids and what the world's going to be like for them. But you have to hold to this promise that, that in Christ, we're not destined for wrath. In Christ, all we have is God's love and hope and promise to get us through whatever it is we face in the future. However unknown, however unsure we might be, we can hold on to our promises in Christ. And not just hold on to them now, but I guess look at Revelation 22, his last words to us. We're just not kind of sitting around waiting, trying to bear, you know, bear through it. We're to be anticipating 
Christ's final words as, as the canon closes in Revelation 22, 20, and 21. He who testifies. Who's the he who testifies? It's Jesus. Jesus who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Well, how quickly? Well, we're 2,000 years later from when he said, I'm coming quickly back then. The time is near. How much closer? We're 2,000 years closer. So should we be looking to all the news and the signs and the stars and... Hey, you want to do that with your free time, you got the right to do it. But please, with that same interest as I talked about last year, that same interest and excitement and curiosity to, to know about all that's already happened, that you would have a passion to tell people about the Lord. Because he says, I'm coming quickly. And what does John write in response? Come, Lord Jesus. You know why we want Lord Jesus to come for us? Because we're ready. You know who's not ready? The unbeliever. If you're not in Christ today, you're not ready for his return. But you need to be. And how can you be ready for his return? Putting your faith in his life that was perfect, his death that was sacrificial on your behalf, and the power of his resurrection that if he rose again, you too will rise and live forever with him. And he invites you to trust in him today. I'm not saying you got to be on board with everything I just said. It, it came at you fast. But the one thing that you will change in your heart when you come to know the Lord as Savior is that you will say, come Lord Jesus. I love you. I can't wait to see you because of what you did for me by dying on the cross. And I pray you would give your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for all the promises that are yes and amen in him. Thank you for this group of saints who deep down their, their heart's passion and desire is to see you, Lord. doesn't mean we still don't carry these other desires in this lifetime to love our families and care for our neighbors and, and help the weak. Those are all wonderful things. But why we do it is because we love you because you first loved us and that's, that's never going to grow old. We'll live forever and eternity in the love of God in Christ That'll never be old. So thankful, thankful for your precious promises to us here today. And again, for any who don't know you as Savior, Lord, that you would speak to their heart this morning and call them to yourself, that they would hear the voice of the good shepherd who says, any who come to me I will not cast out and none can snatch them from my hand. Because you said you have other sheep that still haven't come and some of them are in here today and they need to come. And we pray you would draw them spirit to salvation. In Christ's name, amen.